Hello, this is Pornography as I See It, here with Dr. Kevin Skinner, Dr. Jill Manning, Dr. Shondell Knowlton. We're talking in class class uh, five, we're uh, going to be talking about your relationship, now what? Uh, to today we're going to be talking about your relationship, now what? In our last class, class four, we talked about finding peace in times of trial, and uh, we, we were focusing on helping the individual who's struggling with their partner's sexual addiction deal with find, finding peace in times of trial. Today we're going to be talking about your relationship, now what? And uh, it looks like okay. we've got you back on the line. Are we here? Yes, we're here. Great. It's good to, good, to, good to have you guys. Uh, you know, today we're going to be talking about uh, your relationship, now what? And one of the core things we're going to be talking about is, you know, if you want a relationship and your partner is dealing with a sexual addiction, what should we do? What should we not do? And, and so let's suppose you, a person has just uh, discovered uh, their partner's sexual addiction. What are we going to do and how should, how should they respond in the relationship? And we'll be talking about that. Any thoughts that you have before we get started on this topic? Not here. There's tons. <laughs> Let's just start and we'll come together. All right. Well, well let's begin. I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about it. the first thing first. Trust has been broken. Loyalty has been questioned. And now we're questioning the commitment to the relationship. I think those are the three core concepts. Trust has been broken. Loyalty questioned. And now how committed are we in this relationship? Should I be committed? Should I not be committed? Should, what, how should I now respond in this relationship? And I think those are three key things that we have to begin looking at that they sh- they're already looking at, right? May I start with a, a thought about trust? Yeah, please. That, that very first point. I find many women I work with take it upon themselves that somehow it's their job to restore the trust. And I think it's critical to realize whoever violated the trust, the onus is on that person to earn back and restore the trust. And her job may be to eventually become more open to trusting as she has action-oriented steps to base that on. That's exactly been my experience in therapy. You know, one of the things I want to bring up real quick is this. I really think that there's a concept here. We talk, we talk about forgiveness, and I think a large part of what we're going to be talking about today is the concept of forgiveness. So one of the things that we're talking about is I've discovered my partner's sexual addiction, and they have said that I'm sorry. How does a person respond to I am sorry in the first week or the first two weeks? And then really, I believe there's a concept here that we oftentimes overlook in what we would call the repentance process, and that is making restitution. Right. And that really, Jill, that's what you were talking about. Right. Well, oh, this is such a huge topic. Let, let's start, first of all, with the comment, I'm sorry. I've said to so many men, I'm sorry isn't going to cut it, because I'm sorry is something that someone will say to me if they accidentally bump into me in the grocery store. That may seem like a good start, but the relationship needs some time to figure out what people are even really saying sorry for, and for both partners to understand what the hurts have been and what the impact of all of this is. So I encourage couples to wait some time to really sift through all of this, to identify what it is they're saying sorry for, and to in no way rush forgiveness. We feel this kind of Christian imperative to forgive and forget, and yet, and I hope that as this hour continues, we can go through some of the myths around that. And but, I think uh, we should to start go very there. slow. I, I have lots to say, but we'll. I think we should start there, Jill, I, because I think it's really important for people. I really believe you're right on track there. I believe we misunderstand the concept of forgiveness because I don't believe you can forgive a person for this type of behavior in a week. No. Do you know what I mean? No. I mean, it's not something you say, well, I forgive you. Well, what does that mean to the person who has who is, has done nothing 
Or And what does that mean to the person who has done the sexual offense? How I interpret an early, I'm sorry, or I forgive you, is basically saying, oh, I so want things to get back to normal. Can we just go back to how this was before? This is way too painful and hurtful. And it's more of an attempt to get things back to a normal than it is to really serve a healing function. And so we have to help people understand what they're really saying when they offer that very early. Because my experience is it's rarely, if ever, truly an unhonest, genuine, deep forgiveness. But it can be a sense of desire. If we understand it to be, I want to do something about this, I want to be forgiven, or I want to forgive, we can frame it in those kinds of terms and have it be a beginning, as long as it's understood that it's just a baby step of a beginning. That's an excellent point. The concept there is I want. I I want to forgive, but right now, again, we don't have enough information or data to say that I can forgive you. I mean, if we truly understand sexual addiction, we have to take into account that this isn't something that happens overnight. You don't you don't quickly overcome a sexual addiction. You have to be proactive in your own recovery. And and so the person who's dealing with the sexual addiction, for them to say, I'm sorry, and I'll never do it again in the first period of time is really not realistic. Right. They may be sorry that this they were caught. They may be sorry at how devastating this is to their partner right away or that they lost a job or lost church standing. I really like that idea. It's a step. It's a baby step. And there's a whole lot more to come for true healing and authentic forgiveness to take place. So realistically, what we're saying here is once you first discover the per- your partner's sexual addiction, the best step you both can take is, is we need to get more data. We need to understand, I want to forgive you and I want to be forgiven. But this it's is going to be... It's possible that this can still be a relationship. Yeah, it's possible. And this is going to be a journey and we're both going to have to discover and we're both going to have to play it a hand at a time. Mm-hmm. And when, when I say play a hand at a time, it's something that we teach. And that is basically when... When your partner's played their hand, you discover their sexual addiction, it's now your turn to play your hand. And you have the choice of what cards you're going to play and how you're going to play those cards. And you play your hand, and then they have to respond to the hand you've played. And it's it's this, a dance back and forth trying to figure out how to best have a, a, a working, functional relationship based upon what each other's the information each other is giving one another. I often tell clients, you can't really choose in to a relationship unless you can also choose out. Interesting. It, it so me, if you if you feel like there's no way you can leave the relationship, then you're not necessarily choosing in. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for clients to understand all along the way they have choices and that they have options. Because I don't want any woman or any male or any man to feel like they stay in the relationship because they're trapped in it. Choice is such a powerful element from here forward. Very, very important point. So you're basically saying you have the commitment that you initially made with your partner has been broken. Right. And now you have to ask yourself a question. Do I want to stay in this relationship or do I want to not, right? Yep. So let's pursue this a little bit further down the road. Let's say that they do decide to work on the relationship. That they said, okay, we're going to work to improve this relationship. Give me some guidelines. I mean, I want to, I want to help the listeners understand the concept of forgiveness. Let's talk about some general concepts that can help if they're going to work on the relationship. Okay, first of all, Kevin, it's got to be our we. That was a key word. Because very often a woman will try and make it on her own. So I think one of the first things that needs to happen is the offender or the sexual addict needs to be accountable for something. As Joe said before, it's got to be based on action. So talk with me about if a woman says, okay, how would I know my partner is changing? What type of accountable behavior should they be expecting? Will he make an appointment 
for counseling? Will he find someone? I mean, it doesn't have to be these things, but it has to be something. So is the person willing to make an appointment? What else would you suggest? Well, he needs to start what I refer to as living above suspicion. Because all this behavior was going on in secret, the challenge for him is proving that he's no longer doing something. It's very hard to prove you're not doing something much easier to prove you are doing something. And so he's got to get into this mentality of living above suspicion, meaning I need to do actions that put my behavior and my wife's perception of me above the radar, that I'm reducing the suspicion and any thoughts of what's he up to, what's he doing, is this a day when he's going to slip? And so some of it depends on where the problem areas were. For example, if he was using credit cards to pay for phone sex or massage parlors, he may go to his wife, cut up his credit cards, and be without a credit card for a time. But she needs to be an active participant in those discussions about where the accountability needs to rise because she's the one needing proof right now. So they need to work together. She needs to identify where is her lack of trust, where should there be some accountability, what areas of life, financial, business, travel, the computer at home, whatever area it may be. And then come up with some ideas of, well, what could we do to put some parameters, new limits on that particular area of life? And then he has to step up to the plate and do those. And it's really up to him to rise to the occasion and to do those. Now, with the women, I make sure that we discuss this isn't punishment. This is trying to create safety and have him be living above the radar. It's not about creating these Hercules-like tasks for him to perform. This is about restoring trust in those areas of life. You know, and I have a couple of situations where I've had people say, okay, I'm going to check your email and they just have an agreement. And and I, I will see the phone bill every month and see the phone calls that you've made. And I will be looking at that every month just to let you know. And they work it out where they, that's what they actually do is they have a specific protocol of saying, these are the things that I want you to check. In fact, I was talking with a man and he said, I went to my wife and said, if you're comfortable with this, I just want you to review these every month just so you know what I'm doing. And that was a person who was willing to make the restitution. That's really helpful. And that's what he said. He said, I'm willing to do that because I realize that this is something that I have betrayed her trust. And that's a perfect example of living above suspicion. He's got to go over and beyond what he was doing before because it's so hard to prove you're not doing something. You know, and uh, just really another, just another example. If you're coming chronically, been coming home late, that means you're going to be home on time and you're going to be accountable for your time. And I can't emphasize that enough. I don't know how many women who have said, I just don't know where he's at or what he's doing. And so that means that you're going to have to be accountable for your time. And to the man, that makes it feel like, well, I'm putting myself in a box. Well, you know what? If you want a healthy marriage, are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to pay At the price? At this point, that's going to be really crucial because word alone doesn't mean anything. You don't have a client that has said every day for a long time, a long time, what can I do to make your life better today? And I love that because it's not just based on the shaming behavior or his mistake. It encompasses the entire relationship. So when he says, what can I do to make your life better today? And then he's impeccable with his word. In following through and providing that, trust can come back that way. Exactly. And And there's a little book called The Four Agreements. Excellent. That is an excellent book. And I find it helps men who have been in this situation empower themselves. We've got that book sitting on our desk in my office. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where impeccable in your word comes from. But to say every day, what can I do for you today? Or at least on days you can remember. So it's several times a week. And then be impeccable in that word. So if you say, I'm going to pick up the laundry today from the cleaners or something. You have to make sure if you're the male in this, that you do that. 
interesting. There, there's no more wiggle room. They've right. lost the privilege of wiggle room and allowance with that. And they've also lost the privilege of having their word alone be enough. They have violated that privilege. It's not the wife that took that away. They took it away themselves by years of secretive behavior and presenting a different image to their spouse. The, the men need to understand that. This is going to be on hold for a very long time until that action-oriented living and living above suspicion slowly in time regains trust. And the principle that we're talking about here is the principle of integrity. Absolutely. B- because the integrity has been broken with the trust and the loyalty and the level of commitment that has gone out the window. Mm-hmm. And so what we're really trying to restore here, the principle is the principle of integrity to the relationship. And that's where even small offenses, saying you're going to take out the garbage and not doing it can reoffend the person because they're saying, if you're lying to me in this or you're not doing what you said you're going to do, are there other things that you're also not telling me the truth in? Right. So if you say you're going to do it, the principle of integrity is that you do that. You keep that commitment. Because she feels duped, and she's now questioning everything that's gone on before and putting new meaning on everything before, the good and the bad. And there's two elements here. If the person who's offended acts with integrity, the relationship begins to heal more quickly. Right. And if I can speak to the women's role in this, because sometimes when we talk about, you know, both partners need to be committed to the healing process, that can rub a lot of women the wrong way because they think, you know, (laughs) I didn't create this mess. Why is there anything on my plate to do? He needs to clean up his act and get things together and then we'll talk. When we say that both of them play a role, that doesn't mean that both have the same responsibility. He is solely 100% responsible for stopping and cleaning up this addictive behavior. But if they want the marriage to move forward, she has responsibilities of different kinds, a different role, I should say. And that is to slowly begin to be open to trust as he is proving himself. I love a quote by Indira Gandhi that spoke of, it's impossible to shake hands with a clenched fist. It's impossible for a marriage to become a marriage again if she is completely closed to trusting. And if that remains locked in that, it's very difficult for a marriage to heal. You know, and there's a delicate balance there, I believe. I mean, there's a timing thing. It goes back to the question, how can I tell my partner's changing? And one of the things I say to my clients is, you need to watch their feet, not their mouth. Right. And, and over time, you see what they're doing and you see their actions. And if you're unwilling to see the positive actions of what they are doing, then you're really not giving them the chance to show you that they can do this. And I know that that's a delicate balance because initially you're going to be skeptical. You're going to be questioning, are they really committed to this? Are they really going to do it? They've told me a hundred times that they're going to stop. Are they really serious this time? I recognize that there's a delicate balance there. But if you're seeing the actions, they're going to group. They're going to individual therapy. They're setting up their own appointments. They're trying to nurture your relationship. They're trying to be consistent in what they tell you they're going to do, they do. If they're doing those things, those are all good signs that say they're really trying to make the effort to recover. And they allow you. And with that, there's some allowance for the struggle to continue. So instead of all bad times, we recognize we have good times, but we're still having difficult times. And it's part of the struggle. And it's going to go on for quite some time. Let's talk a little bit more more about this idea of forgiveness for a second. Janice Abrams Spring wrote that wonderful book, How Can I Forgive You? Yes. And I want to talk a little bit about that, especially some of the concepts. She identified them as cheap forgiveness. Either one of you want to speak to cheap forgiveness? Because I think we really need to illustrate this so people understand the concept. Well, cheap forgiveness, I had a client that at one time came in and maybe two or three weeks after really serious 
serial offenses that she had just found out with, and she had been writing. She had been doing that to try and keep her sanity, and three weeks after the event, made a show of burning her writings and saying, that's okay, I'm done. How many weeks? We can do this, and that's what had gone on in the week prior to therapy. But it wasn't real because she hasn't healed. She hasn't worked through it. She hasn't got the trust back. He hasn't earned it back yet. But in order to try and feel better about herself, she said, I forgive you. And she does it with the words, but she's not capable of following through with the actions yet and not that that's not that she should be and it takes time but cheap forgiveness is doing it because you're supposed to and you want to say i do forgive you rather than i'm going to try and forgive you and i hope you can do the actions because true forgiveness comes when there is some restitution and some soothing from the person that hurt you. Well, and, and cheap forgiveness is a bit of a one-way street. Cheap forgiveness yes. is one person saying, I forgive you. But there isn't an interaction between two people. It's not a relational healing. It's a one-sided offering, which basically means I really want to get over this. I may want to forgive you. I don't know how, but I, I want this feeling to go away. It's awful. I hate how things are right now. True, authentic forgiveness has medicinal effect on two people and there are changes in two people, a real change of heart. When there's cheap forgiveness, it breeds resentment. It's toxic because it it leaks out in different ways throughout the lifespan. Whereas authentic forgiveness, there really is a change of heart and a letting go for two people. A relationship is healed. That is so valuable comparing and contrasting the true forgiveness versus cheap forgiveness. But there's also something that she talked about, the refusal to forgive or refusing to forgive. And I want to address that for a minute because I believe there's times where in some situations people have been so hurt and it's necessarily just in their marriage, but they've been hurt in their childhood or hurt in their teen years, hurt in previous relationships or marriages to the point where they stop trusting completely in people. And they've basically come to the point, you've hurt me, you've offended me, I cannot forgive you, I refuse to forgive. If a woman is in that situation, how would you counsel her? And I know this is a difficult one because they're in so much pain. I'd be curious to know how that stance, what the payoff is how that protects her or helps her. Because very often when someone's refusing to forgive, they may have ideas about forgiveness that to forgive means I'm saying that behavior was okay. Or and it might happen again. Right. So you have to identify what are the beliefs about forgiveness that the person's holding that may be roadblocking them to that. And then understanding what the payoff is for them in the short term to not forgive. Does that give them a sense of safety, for instance? That that's something they can hang on to and there's a sense of power in that. So in this situation, suppose there is a refusing to forgive because you've done it over so many years. Why in the world would you not do it again in a year or two? Or what if you act out again in five years? I'm not willing to give you that chance. Well, then there relationship needs to be over. And she has that option. At least as a therapist, I've encountered this, and I'm sure you have, where they still want the relationship, but they can't forgive because of the desire to, I'm not sure I can trust you. Do you see what I'm saying? There's there's a really delicate balance here. Can you live with not trusting? And how long is he willing to live above suspicion? Is that going to be the adopted lifestyle? I mean, there are questions that need to be asked. Right. And and I think, you know, it would be important to determine how long have they been in that stance. Are we talking weeks since the disclosure or discovery? Are we talking we, years? That's months? right. Because it really depends on so many factors. And this is a long haul. This has been a very, very serious hurt. And, and it's going to take time to develop new normals and rebuild a different kind of relationship, one that does not have room 
for this kind of a problem to take root like it had before. I guess in part of answering this question, I, I personally have found that you really need to grant time and say, you know what, right now you may not be able to forgive. What are the behaviors or the things that would need to be occurring so you could forgive? That's a challenging question because right now they can't, they might not even see that as a possibility because every time they start to feel a little bit of hope, they say, well, he might relapse or he's going to relapse. And so they really, what they're doing is they're squelching any hope rather than living with perhaps what their partner is doing to show that they're willing to change. Go to group therapy, go to individual counseling and things that we've talked about. It's really interesting. The individuals who refuse to forgive, they need to understand that they do have the option out, but what are they benefiting, as you say, Jill, from what they're experiencing and refusing to forgive? And I think this speaks to the importance of not feeling pressure or not buckling under the pressure to forgive too soon. If someone's still feeling that at risk for relapse and that unstable in the relationship, that tells me that genuine, deep, change of heart kind of forgiveness, it hasn't had its time yet. There's still a lot of work to be done. And I think very often, especially Christian women that I work with, fall into this trap of believing they have to forgive frankly and right away and forget it. But then he relapses. And what they do is they set themselves up for a massive failure spiritually and psychologically because, A, the way we are designed, it's impossible for us to forget. Something may loosen its grip and its power in our lives, but just like Shondell was, you don't forget breaking your arm in grade one. Right. It's the way we are designed And it's interesting, I've had one client in particular who was in her 50s, very spiritual woman. She was in a moment of distress and stayed up to three in the morning one night trying to find a scripture that talked of forgiving and forgetting. It doesn't exist. Forgiving and forgetting, that is something that God can do, but the way humans are designed, we don't forget. In fact, we're encouraged to remember so that we learn and we don't make mistakes again. And we can retain the, the learning that comes from our lives' most significant times. So we undermine ourselves and invalidate our experiences when we put this pressure on to forgive and forget right away. And we cut ourselves off from so much learning. I think the key spiritual principle is to be open to forgiveness to strive for that, to learn from our experiences, to not punish other people, and to really be open to that. Just keep a door open in our hearts for forgiveness to take place when it's time and to learn through that. Very important word, when it's time, because I believe that not only are we experiencing time, but we begin to see that our partner is changing, that they're being accountable for their time, that they're being consistent, that they're acting with integrity. And not only are they acting with integrity, but they're affirming your worth. They're sending value to you as their partner. They're acknowledging, even on a regular basis, I am sorry for the things that I've done. I am sorry for offending and hurting you because you are a person that I want to have a better relationship with. And one key element, I am all for, I'm obviously a marriage therapist and I want marriages to work out. But forgiveness doesn't always mean that you stay together either. Yep. Now there's the concept of acceptance where she talks about what happens if the person refuses to change. Right. Can you forgive the person if they choose not to give up their addictive behaviors? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that she is really, Janice Abrams Spring has really added to the concept of forgiveness. If the person's not going to change, can you still heal? Right. And forgiveness is, at that point is something that you do for yourself and you accept their behavior and turn them over to some other power. And then the relationship might not continue. 
You know, Kevin, I had a fascinating conversation with a woman a couple of months ago where we were talking about this very subject, and she read, she had turned to scriptures as a real lifeline during this process, and she read the scripture where Christ talked about forgiving 70 times 7, and it took on new meaning for her because she realized that didn't necessarily mean forgiving active behavior 70 times 7, but sometimes that can be even forgiving the memory of it as it comes up again in our lives that we strive to remain open to that each time it comes up. We feel angry or we're triggered. It doesn't mean the behavior happened again. There may just be a memory of it or something recalls that pain and that anger. And we just really strive to be open to forgiving that and working with it and letting it go each time it comes up. It will. It's like grief. It comes up again and again as we learn from it and as we change and as our life brings up new information that we learn from, it triggers different things. Just, I love that perspective that she had on that, to remain open to it. Well, and especially to practice your forgiveness as a skill, especially when your partner is doing new behaviors and has had a change of heart. So you can believe what is happening now to re-forgive that. Nobody wants to feel foolish or to have it happen again. I think that's the biggest fear, right. is it will happen again. Human beings seem to me to be very willing to forgive when someone comes to them and says, I've done wrong, I've hurt you, I'm so sorry. We want to forgive. But the fear is of being hurt again. And so we forgive those memories, like Joe was saying, and I think that can be very helpful. You know, And there's the part here when the partner, I guess there's this relationship where there's times when the relationship isn't going to work, and there's times when it is going to work. But on the time where it's not going to work, you can be okay even if your partner chooses not to change. And that's the acceptance of it that I think that is so important for some people to recognize. If your partner is not going to change, you don't have to take that personally. Sometimes people choose unhealthy behaviors and they have to live with those consequences. If a person chooses to have an affair and stay out of the relationship and not re-engage in the relationship, that has nothing to do with you specifically. You can't change it if they're going to choose to stay in an affair or to continue looking at pornography or going to topless bars or whatever it may be. If they're going to continue to live that lifestyle, their belief system may separate them from you, and it's their belief system that's separating them from you, not necessarily what you're doing. Right. And if the behaviors don't change, I will often tell women, I'm sorry, but I think that maybe you've outgrown this. Your belief in I mean, they can't stay in a place where they accept that. Where their belief and value systems are different. And sometimes, right. that, sometimes that occurs. Sometimes a person chooses to live in the addiction. And if they choose to live in the addiction, you cannot force that person out of it. And the moment you recognize that, then you begin that acceptance process of saying, I understand this. This is not about me. This is about the addictive behavior that's taken over this person's life. You know, one of the trickiest questions for women is, how do I know? What do you say to somebody who says, yeah, but I didn't know before? How do I know if he's choosing that life or not? And I think that that is watching their feet. Mm-hmm. It's a concept we teach over and over and again. You know, you don't necessarily listen to the words. You watch the feet of what they do and what they say. And, and if, well, and I think there's a larger question of just generally, how do we deal with uncertainty? How do we cope with that? What does that mean for us in our own lives? What percentage of uncertainty we are, are we okay with with our spouses? Do we insist on a marriage where we know 100% of everything? Or is there a certain amount that we could live with? And that's a very individual, personal decision that depends on a lot of things. And everybody has their own threshold. And I think that that's something that we need to accept and acknowledge. Everybody has their own threshold of what they can and can't accept. Right. 
You know, a topic that we, if this is not the right time for this subject, we can definitely shift gears back. But I think sexual intimacy is such a huge factor that doesn't get enough talk time with once this kind of thing happens in a relationship. How do we handle and navigate intimacy on all levels with our partner again? Most women that I work with, they either feel they need to engage more sexually because they blame themselves, they weren't sexually available enough, or they withdraw. And it is okay for women to withdraw from sexual intimacy to restore a sense of safety, especially if they're risky behaviors like unprotected sex that were going on with prostitutes or or what have you. So redefining normals around sexual intimacy is a very delicate and tricky road for couples to do. But it's exciting when couples are making genuine deep changes and over time, and that's going to be the key word with all of this, time, 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 to have them redefine what do we want our relationship to look like in all aspects. And he's bought into so many lies about sexuality that it takes time for him to unlearn and relearn what true intimacy in a marriage looks like and for them to navigate and walk that road together. Real quick on that, on that very topic, I've experienced times where not only have the couple, they don't, neither, neither one of them know how to respond to each other sexually. Because, right. Because he is saying, I know I've done this and I don't want to hurt you anymore, but there is still is that bonding element, that sexual bonding element that some people still truly desire and some people absolutely don't want anything to do with at all. And I guess every, in, every couple needs to address that specifically. I'm not comfortable with touch because I feel like I'm just an object or, well, okay, so the question is, is what would it be like if you didn't feel like an object? What? would he be doing? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a conversation that couples need to be able to have together. And, you know, it's important to put out there in some of the inpatient treatment programs for sexual addictions, like where a person, man or woman, is actually hospitalized or put in an institution for a, t- a facility, I should say, for a time to withdraw and really clean themselves up. Many of those programs will recommend abstinence for 60 to 90 days to completely withdraw from that behavior as, as a form of detox. Not that sexual intimacy is toxic, but when there's been so many lies and hurt and unhealthy behaviors and addictive behaviors associated with sexuality, it can be useful for couples to take a break from that part of life and unlearn and start relearning some truths about that that are intimate and healthy. Well, and to maybe start with um, non-sexual touch as a form of intimacy. You know, and one of the things that I talk about, I have a CD titled True Intimacy, where I talk about six different types of intimacy. And in that CD, I talk about verbal intimacy and emotional intimacy and intellectual intimacy and spiritual intimacy and psychological intimacy. Mm -hmm. And, And as we create those different types of intimacy, the byproduct of them is sexual intimacy. But if you have those types of intimacy, being sexual together is very, very fun and enjoyable because it's not, you're not an object, you're enjoying different types of intimacy and you naturally want to be physically intimate. Anyway, I would encourage people, you know, if you haven't listened to that CD, you can get a copy of it at growthclimate.com. But the concept I really want to emphasize there is if you engage in those other types of intimacy, the natural byproduct is that you want sexual intimacy one with another. But again, that takes time. Right. It takes time. And healing. Yep. And think about it. How many times have you had couples who have discovered the sexual addiction and their verbal intimacy, their amount of communication just goes off the charts higher. They're talking more. They're more right. more emotional one with another. And so they, in many instances, I've heard couples that they actually feel like their relationship is better than it's ever, ever been because now they're actually talking in ways that they've never talked before, at least maybe not before they were engaged. There's many women that will, will say to me, well, Jill, I'm scared that if I don't engage sexually with my husband, 
even though I feel very unsafe doing that, I'm scared that that would trigger him to look at pornography again. So she then starts policing the behavior through sexuality, and that can really distort and pollute intimacy with a couple. And it's important that women especially understand that is not her job to protect and shield him from triggers or that behavior. That's going to be his healing. And the earlier that can be clear, the less enabling will go on that encourages that behavior to continue. Very, very good points. Is there anything else you want to bring up on sexual intimacy? I would like to transition into into true forgiveness and what that can look like or genuine forgiveness. But is there anything else either of you would like to say on sexual intimacy before we continue on? I think it helps for a woman to say, to be able to voice what kind of intimacy she can accept at what point. To be able to talk open. So I had, I have, for example, I had one woman say, well, I would like it if he would brush my hair. That kind of touch. That's the kind of touch I can take right now. And then it becomes the couple's again instead of images and competing in her mind. And one of the things I say to couples is sometimes you have to reclaim your sexual life together. Yes. And you have to learn how to do that in a safe environment where you both are safe. Mm-hmm. And uh, very, very critical point. All right. So to recourt. Yes. So we've got 15 minutes. I want to talk about helping couples achieve this genuine forgiveness, this true forgiveness. What does that look like? How are two people doing this? I, I believe Janice Avery and Spring said it's kind of like a dance. So what are the elements of this dance that we want to share with couples? Honesty about where we really are is an important part of this dance. When you are intimate enough to be honest with one another. That's a whole new concept for a lot of couples at this point. And in reality, there's a concept that I've talked about. It's called the fear of intimacy. And I've actually written an article titled The Fear of Intimacy Club, Are You a Member? And what I talk, no, no really, I, I believe that this fear of intimacy is often why people turn to addictive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Because they have a fear of genuinely letting someone into me see and letting that person into them and to see who they really are. And so it's easier to turn to addictive behaviors than to create a genuinely healthy, intimate relationship. And so one of the things that I talk about is you can't have an addiction and true intimacy at the same time. So we transfer into an intimate, healthy relationship. And uh, I've written another article titled Addiction and Intimacy, where my whole premise is is this. You can't have addictive behaviors dominating your life and expect to have a healthy, intimate relationship. You can't do it. That's right. I've never, ever seen a couple, an individual come into my office and say, I am addicted to drugs. And I, ha- and I have the best marriage in the world. Right. In fact, most of the situations, they're separated, divorced, or going through a divorce. Yeah. That's been my experience in dealing with addictions. So part of this concept, as you said, uh, Shondell, is trust and honesty. And in order for you to have trust and honesty, you have to have what I call psychological intimacy, which is trust and honesty and commitment and loyalty. And I call it psychological intimacy because that's what's in your mind. You trust is a part of your mind. And it's how you see the person. And if they're acting consistent with trustful, honest behavior, they're committed to the relationship and they're showing loyalty to you, then you trust them. And there's nothing that can replace that kind of trust in a relationship. And so I believe that's part of what a healthy, intimate relationship would look like. And genuine forgiveness would require those. If you're not being loyal, you can't have a healthy relationship. If If you're not being honest, you can't have a healthy relationship. If you're not doing things that are trustworthy, you can't have a healthy relationship. That's one of the things that I just try to emphasize with my clients. If you want to have a healthy relationship, we move away from addiction and into healthy intimacy. Trust becomes such an issue, too, that sometimes it's helpful to espouse in this forgiveness process to say, I know that it's possible now. I don't get to be naive and think this could never happen, but today I trust you. Yeah, and that today they must be doing something that you, you, you see or you are feeling more open to them because you see something that they're doing. 
Yes, and be willing to forgive and saying that I know that you don't want this to be part of your life and to hurt me again. And today I trust you not to make it that way. So really quick, I want to, I want to discuss if a couple comes to you and says, we want to have a better marriage. We've struggled. We're we're now a few months removed from this, maybe a, a year even maybe two years. We want to have a healthy, a better relationship. What advice or counsel would you give to them? I would definitely say go slow and learn all you can about why this happened in the first place so that it's not repeated, to be thorough in the healing. Uh, Sometimes couples will say that with the best of desires, but they're trying to speed it up. They want things to happen right away. And that scares me because that's part of the porn addict's mindset begin with, a quick fix. Mm -hmm. And so it's important that we counter that by really going slow, being okay with it being a process, and finding even just one small step. What would be the one thing that would make the most significant difference in your relationship today? Let's focus on that. And just culturally, we have such a hard time with patients, especially those that part of a belief system that may see uh, marriage as an eternal process. It's important that we not choke down eternity, that we really be patient with the learning and growing as a couple. Very, very good point. What do you think, Shondell? I like to have couples also futurize. What would we like to be like you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, do we see ourselves grandparenting together? Do we see ourselves traveling together? Do we see each other as best friends? I'd like them to keep some focus on where they're headed instead of where they've been. If we can switch that focus in due time, like we're talking about, to, okay, we've been through this, we have been patient with it, and I suggest that about 10% of the healing happens the first year. Yeah. That's hard for couples to hear, but I think 10% happens about the first year and the rest is the next two years, or not the rest, but the majority is in the next two years. But then get to a point where you look forward with each other and you make meaning out of what you have been through together. Right. This is a pretty powerful, with true forgiveness and true repentance, when we talk about one, we need to talk about the other. But with those things being in place, you have such a foundation as a couple that even though others may discount your marriage because this has happened, they have no idea of the depth that it can be. Another aspect, too, is when a couple goes through something like this, it sucks every ounce of fun <laughs> and playfulness yes. out of your life. That is a great point. And, and when a couple starts to feel trusting and okay with one another again, I really encourage couples to either re-engage with a a loved activity they used to do when they were dating or courting, or to discover something new, take a class together, some something fun. Life's so dull and and Mm -hmm. lifeless when when there isn't that playful fun component. And I think it's important for couples when you've been through a battle like this, and I'm not being light-minded, I'm not saying, oh, just go have fun when <laughs> when they're still feeling traumatized and, and so hurt by one another. That's a later stage, but I, that's an important topic to yeah. cover with but couples. couples will tell you, I think you're right on here, though, Jill, because couples will tell you what they miss. Yeah. They miss the lightheartedness of their relationship. They miss the fun and the play. I have an assignment that I give to clients, and it's this. I want you to write down five things that you're talking about as a couple. And on that list is they're generally speaking about maybe children, but almost always a majority of it has to do with the pain, the hurt, all of that. And I say, you know, if these are the things that you guys are talking about as a couple, what you're focusing on right now is the pain and the hurt. 
Uh-huh. And, and I believe that's in earlier stages. I believe that is critical. But uh-huh. there needs to be a transition into things that we enjoy doing together as a couple. And sometimes in the very beginning, I will tell couples this. Right now, it is completely okay for you guys to spend a lot of your interaction talking about the pain and the hurt. We need to get that out. We need to we need to make sure that we're having a, a mutual shared meaning of the hurt and pain. And sometimes that's the woman talking specifically to the man about this hurt me. But once they've created the meaning of it, the question that always has to be asked is, now where do we go from here? You know, Kevin, I think we have so many powerful ceremonies, rituals, markers, things that shift us into periods of life, you know, high school graduation, uh, weddings, um, baby blessings. When, when we go through something like this, there are no real markers or rituals or ceremonies to, to designate, wow, this is a new phase of life for us. And, and often I'll brainstorm with couples of what, what's something significant that you could do together that would really, in a very concrete way, help you remember this new beginning you're now starting. And that may be an important trip travel or an important gift that they give one another or something they say or write. It doesn't have to be costly. It can be extremely simple. I've had couples bury, literally bury letters or journals together as a couple and and really mark that, really that there's something concrete that they remember can be helpful. Such good advice. It's the transition from the pain and the hurt into we are beginning to thrive and enjoy life again. When they don't even know what to do or where to begin this, the very beginning stages can be as simple as find something on the news that was interesting to you during your day while you were apart and talk about it with your spouse for a few minutes every night. You know, and that that concept is the concept of verbal intimacy that I teach people. Mm-hmm. You can start with a verbal conversation, and generally it sinks then deeper into emotional issues and emotional intimacy. And what I try to explain to couples is, you've been focusing so much on the on the on what's occurred that what we have stopped doing is nurturing the relationship in positive ways and talking about things that you enjoy and want to enjoy. And again, there's a delicacy of the timing there, but I believe that healthy couples transition into that. They begin setting goals together, planning, creating rituals as you say, Jill, and that is the transition to, to living again, not not surviving. Well, John Gottman's work gives us a good clue on that. Anything can be helpful from John Gottman's work, but that we increase the positive to negative ratio. So when this happens, it's pretty much all negative, and that's normal. But with time, if we can increase, and if we can't decrease the negative interactions, that we're having, if we can build in more and more positives into our life, that will help us pull out of the negative. All right. Very, very good. We've got about two minutes left. And I just, in closing, uh, we're closing class five, where we've been talking about your relationship, now what? Any concluding remarks, advice that you want to give to our listeners and anything that you would like to close with? Hang in there. (laughs) And then I would emphasize along that hang in there cheer that to be really patient and recognize it's a process. And there's no right or wrong way of going through the process. Kevin, along with exactly what Jill is saying, is not to be judgmental of yourself. Because sometimes this takes time and you have to be forgiving not only of your spouse, but certainly of yourself and in your behaviors as you go through this. Be patient. Yep. You know, in our final minute, just let me conclude. You know, this concludes a five a five week or five classes that we've been talking about, you know, really helping the the female 
and in some instances the male, whose spouse has a sexual addiction. What I would like to instill in people is this. Your lives can change. You can have healthy, intimate relationships, but you can't do it if you don't have two people who are willing to work at it. So it requires two people, but when you have two people working on it, you can create that relationship with time and energy and effort. And real quick, I want to say thanks to you too. Uh, Jill and Chandel, you've been absolutely wonderful in, in talking with, sharing your insight and your experiences as therapists. I want to thank you for your time and energy. And I want to thank the listeners for taking the time to, to let us offer ideas and solutions to help you. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds. Any concluding remarks? Bless you. <laughs> I'd, I'd want every listener to consider the three of us cheerleaders in their process. Uh, we may never meet directly, but uh, I have the the deepest empathy and and support and admiration for people and couples going through this. And so consider Jill Manning on your team of cheerleaders. And Kevin Skinner and Dr. Sondel Thank you very much. <laughs>